News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update now on what is happening overseas. We know that there are many, many, many buses that are trying to carry civilians out of an embattled Ukrainian city and trying to get as many people to escape as they possibly can. We're going to get an update now from Steve Futterman, who's a CBS correspondent right now in Poland. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. What is the situation like where you are? Where I'm at right now, this is the main border crossing between Poland and Ukraine. And when you realize that 1.2 million Ukrainians or people have crossed this border in Poland overall, it's quite remarkable. This is the main border crossing, so not everyone's been here, but a larger number. Uh, It just goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's been this way since uh, the invasion took place. And it's not like a massive wave of people, a thousand people here at once, but then it's a steady stream uh, constantly, 24 hours a day. You can come here at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, it can be below freezing, and people are coming across the border in their cars, in buses, walking across, everywhere they can get across. Wow, okay, and so that sounds like it has been continuing then. What about the ceasefire situation to allow these humanitarian corridors? What happened with that? Well, this is the fourth day they've tried that. It it was supposed to work in five cities. We are getting reports that in one city it seemed to have worked, but uh, it was very difficult for people to get to the point where the buses were leaving. This is the town of Sumy, which is around around 20 miles from the Russian border in eastern Ukraine. It came under really a harsh attack last night. So the the buses were set up uh, apparently... There were some problems with one of the buses being fired upon, but there were some Russian troops that fired back on the on the troops, and the buses were able to leave. But it's unclear how many people were able to get to the location that was in the remote, remote part of town. People are afraid to leave, and uh, I'm not sure for how much good it did, but some of the buses did leave. Some people were able to leave Sume today. Uh, in the town of Mariupol, which is this port town on the sea, which has just been battered by the, by the Russian troops, just uh, a city that's just been one of the main targets, and much of it has been destroyed. That, it did not, and, and uh, Mariupol, it did not work well today. Uh, the ceasefire, which would have allowed the humanitarian corridors to take place, did not seem to be working. There's still a few hours left in the ceasefire period in these five cities, so we're still getting reports, but at this moment, Sume seems to have worked a bit. Mariupol has not worked at all, and we still don't know about the other cities. Obviously, people are leaving these cities on their own, a much riskier uh, move in traveling for them. Uh, They're not uh, protected at all, but uh, we're going to see this these evacuations, this exodus from Ukraine going on for some time. Again, we reached overall for all countries 2 million today, and most experts feel that will at least double, maybe even more than double. And what is the response like, Steve, then on the on the Poland side, right there on the border where you are? What is this, when somebody crosses into the Polish border there, what kind of reaction, what kind of greeting do they get? Well, it's been a very warm greeting. You know, Poland has had a mixed history of greeting refugees. Uh, there have been some moments that uh, Poles would 
not like to talk about where they did not want refugees, but we're talking about this one right now with the Ukrainian invasion by Russia. They've been uh, welcoming the Ukrainians and other people who've lived in Ukraine uh, with uh, open arms. Uh, there's basically a welcoming center here where people can get free blankets, free food, uh, free clothing. There are people offering housing. Constantly. There are Polish volunteers who, who have a sign out there. When people come off the bus, I can accommodate a family of four or five for X many days. And it's been quite moving. At the train station, if you go to the train station, you can get free SIM cards for your phones to make them work in Poland. The Polish government is basically allowing people coming into Poland from Ukraine to have the basics, the same rights that a regular Polish citizen has. You can work, you can get free medical care, uh, you can uh, have access to social uh, services. So it's been quite, quite receptive here for the uh, Ukraine people in Poland. Well, that is amazing. All right, Steve, thank you so much for the update. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it sounds like it's finally happening. Cruise ships returning to Canadian waters next month. That would be the first time in more than two years. And while there is some easing of COVID restrictions in some provinces, there are still federal regulations that will be remaining in place for travellers, which will apply to cruise ship passengers. So could that stifle the cruise ship industry? Let's find out. Ian Robertson joins us now, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Hi, Ian. Hey, good morning, Simi. So I guess overall, this is good news, right? Oh, it's really good news. It's something, uh, you know, we've been working on now for, gosh, almost a couple of years since the announcement came that uh, ports were closed to cruise. And uh, so yesterday was a very good day. Okay, so what about the federal regulations? So how do you think this is going to impact the industry? I don't think it's going to have a significant impact. I think from a, from a bookings perspective, I continue to hear that demand for the return of cruise is strong. Uh, Alaska's always seen as a very safe and secure cruise, so I don't see any issues there. You know, it's going to cause, I think, some operational challenges for the cruise lines, but, but nothing that I don't think they've anticipated uh, as we work through these conversations with Transport Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Right, because you want cruise ship passengers to come ashore. That's the whole point. We do. And, you know, all along we've said that the health and safety of the community has remained our top priority as we work towards the safe resumption of crews. And this just, you know, uh, uh, exemplifies that, that we continue to have those uh, conditions. And uh, I'm satisfied uh, with what's been put in place that it meets that criteria. Okay, so then how will that work? So if you're a cruise ship passenger, the ship docks in Victoria, what's it going to take for somebody to come off and spend some money in your city? Well, what it's going to take is for them to have a uh, an antigen test, uh, you know, 24 hours uh, or one day in advance. So for most of the ships, uh, they are leaving Alaska and coming down to Victoria. So it means in that 30-hour sailing window, they're going to have to get tested. And uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be challenging. And, you know, that's why we see this as a as kind of the next final step. Uh, at the end of the day, we are still calling on the government to remove all of the antigen testing for people that are fully vaccinated. We joined the, we joined the, our industry in, in calling for that. So I think this is going to be a, a hopefully a temporary interim step uh, that the cruise lines will have to uh, t- take part in. How confident are you that some of these restrictions could get lifted soon? 
Well, fingers are crossed, uh, um, you know, and, and we've had a we've had a really great uh, relationship with Transport Canada. I've been on calls with them very every week, and they've been incredibly collaborative. It's out of their hands. It's in the decision of the Public Health Agency of Canada. And I think as we start to see other jurisdictions around the world relax uh, antigen testing, you know, hopefully we'll get in the same spot. So, you know, I'm kind of hoping that maybe in the next couple of months, uh, as we start to get into the real heart of our season, that these uh, these testing restrictions may be lifted. Right. It certainly seems, Ian, that down in the United States, they they feel like they have moved on from COVID completely. Do you think it might be challenging for them to then suddenly be reminded that, oh, no, no, if you want to go here, you're still going to have to get tested? Yeah, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to require uh, some communication. But, you know, let's not forget that last year, uh, cruises did depart Seattle, bypassed Victoria, and went right up to Alaska. And those requirements, the requirements of a test prior to getting on the ship were in place for passengers then. So it's not something that they've not been used to doing or that the cruise lines haven't implemented in the past. So I think the cruise lines and the passengers will be able to get beyond that. Are you confident that this will build? Like how many ships are coming this year versus what pre-pandemic? Well, for, for Victoria in 2019, uh, uh, we had 257 ship calls. And as I look at the schedule as of this morning, because it does move move a little bit every day, we're at 348 calls. So we're seeing a tremendous, uh, a tremendous rebound. I think the question for all of us is how full will the ships be? Um, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking that the ships may come in in the initial part of the season at about 80% capacity. And as passengers get confident, and return to cruise will will be back up to uh, 100% capacity of those ships. Well, is Victoria ready for that? That's a lot of people showing up. And the, you're talking about stores and restaurants and everything. And we know there's a labor shortage. So is the city ready for that? Well, it's a, it's a great question. We've got, a, we've got a, a hiring fair that's coming up uh, in a week and a half. And, you know, uh, all of the operators, uh, ha- thankfully, have, have been able to remain um alive uh, since uh, since the COVID hit. But, you know, staffing up is going to be a challenge. And so it's going to be kind of a good problem to have. But yes, uh, we're, we're hopeful that all of the operators that support tourism will be able to staff up. Uh, there may be some hiccups with transportation, moving people on and off the terminal, but uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll get there uh, by the middle of the season. Right, but you sound much more optimistic, Ian, than any time we've talked to you in the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I, I would fair to say there's a bit of a bounce in my step, Simi. I think that, uh, you know, there is, good, you know, I am prepared for the fact there's going to be some growing pains. There's going to be some bumps because we haven't done this for a couple of years. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're all excited to get ready. Uh, now our focus is on working uh, for us here in Victoria with Island Health, the Regional Health Authority and the Provincial Health Office to ensure we've got the protocols in place and we're ready for things and we will be ready and it will be safe for passengers uh, to return to Victoria. Well, we'll see how it goes. Ian, thank you. You're welcome, Simi. Ian Robertson, CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority, talking about the return of cruise ships uh, to Canadian waters. That's going to be a pretty big deal, but we'll see if everybody is. This is Mornings with Simi.
Let's talk about those high gas prices and the impact they seem to be having everywhere. When you were planning your travel a month or so ago, you probably didn't factor this in. How could you? You couldn't have known what was going to happen. But now those skyrocketing fuel prices are adding pressure to the already struggling travel sector. Remember the fuel surcharge for airlines? Are we going to be going back to those kinds of days? Well, joining us now is Jim Scott, Managing Director of the Royal Pacific Consulting Group, to talk more about what is happening in the travel sector. Jim, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Cindy. Is this something that the travel industry is struggling with right now? Yes, it is. I mean, high oil prices always lead to higher airfares. And, you know, if we just look back at 2021, when U.S. or um, barrel oil was 70 U.S. dollars, the leader that airlines paid in Canada was about 75 cents. So if it goes to a dollar fifty, I mean it's already up around a dollar twenty-eight. You can just see that the uh, liter costs per uh, jet A will go up, and thirty um, percent of the costs for an airline is its fuel, and they have to pass that uh, cost on to the consumer. So you know, as long as we have oil uh, price increases, we're going to have uh, ticket increases. Do you think that we could see a return to that fuel surcharge? Well. What the fuel surcharge was, a long time ago, uh, airlines used to be able to put surcharges and everything in, and um, that was on top of the base fare. The government has said now that you have to publish uh, a fare that includes all your charges, so it it really doesn't make a difference. The only reason that they would put a fuel surcharge in is so that the consumer sees that this is a temporary measure for high fuel. They're just more accepting of it. They're not thinking that the airline's making money. So if you see a fuel surcharge, it's more of a cosmetic uh, than it is something that can be added on top. You'll see this, for instance, for Nav Canada. They'll have Nav Canada fees inside of your breakdown of your airfare. But they have to advertise the total fare. And that was a, a change in the law. Okay, so is that something do you think airlines are thinking of? Because they probably sold a lot of tickets in the last six weeks, though, Jim, that they that they can't do anything about now. That's right. I mean, once you're locked into your price, that's the price that you're going to pay. So they can't do anything with inventory that they've already sold. What they're going to have to do is start. I mean, there's a number of things that airlines do. Firstly, they head shield. I mean, there's some airlines like Ryanair out of Europe that has bought 80% of its fuel to March of 2023 at $63 a barrel. Wow. So they're fine. And other airlines have done this all throughout the world. So they've already pre-bought their spring and summer fuel. Uh, They'll consolidate flights um, so that they can have more passengers on the flights to hopefully pay for the higher fuel charges. They'll get rid of older airplanes but they'll have to eat what they've already got in the market as far as uh, inventory that they pre-sold. And then they'll have to raise prices for um, the, the future market. The, that consolidation issue is an interesting one because there's nothing more irritating, I think, to people is once you've planned out your trip and you know where you're going, you know, and then you get that email from the airline saying, oh, we've changed your flight. You know, that is becoming, uh, you know, first it was no refunds. And I think we've sorted that issue out in the industry. The next one is the reliability of flight. And, uh, you know, you're, you're booking a flight and the next thing you know is um, it's being canceled and changed and combined. But if you look at what happened in the industry, I think you'll have a little bit of sympathy. You know, in, in March, 
of uh, 2020 uh, COVID uh, struck. But, but by April, Canada had lost 98% of its flying. The United States lost 95% of its flying. And then in the summer of 2020, Canada only went back to 20%, uh, 45% in uh, the summer of 2021. The beginning of this year, because of Omicron, everybody hired all the pilots and everything went back, but Omicron put it back down to 30 So it's now at 60 65%, but they just don't know. I mean, the next variant or something like that. Um, in other words, they don't have their full schedule going, and nobody knows uh, what the flight schedule is going to look like three or four months in advance because of the, um, the COVID re- restrictions. So does that mean that we as tra- potential travelers need to understand that we might have to be a little bit more flexible how we're going to get somewhere? That's right. I mean, right now, I would say, you know, if you're going to go into uh, southern destinations, stuff, make sure you have travel insurance. I mean, this will sort itself out uh, and hopefully it will sort itself out after the uh, the war issue in Europe. But right now, this is a very volatile time for the airlines. I mean, they're subsidizing every single passenger that flies right now, trying to get passengers back into the market. At some point, they're going to have to uh, return to their, their their proper pricing. But, yeah, I mean, you can go from Vancouver to Calgary right now. If you go three three weeks out for $50, most of that's taxes. There's no profit in there for the airlines. They're just trying to get passengers back into the seats and trying to get their fleets back up and flying again. Okay, so any advice then, Jim, for people who are considering traveling? Maybe we held off booking and now we're thinking we have to do it. What What should we be doing? Well, try to book out three weeks. I mean, the airfares get expensive within the last two weeks, especially within the last week. So if you can go out three, four weeks, you'll find some incredible deals right now. Um, be careful on your timing. Like, don't be jumping off an airplane right into some sort of event. Give yourself a little bit of leeway there for whatever changes might go. And if you are going uh, southbound to Mexico or the Caribbean and so on, make sure you have travel insurance. That is good advice. All right, thank you for that. Okay, thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Jim Scott, Managing Director of the Royal Pacific Consulting Group, talking about travel potential problems because of skyrocketing fuel prices, which, by the way, might be about to go up even higher. United States is set in about half an hour or so to announce that they will be banning Russian oil imports. Now, for them, that's about 5% of their total oil imports. So not a huge deal, but it is very symbolic. And of course, that kind of stuff has impacts on stock market prices. And it sounds like the United Kingdom is also getting ready to announce the same thing. This is Mornings with Simi. We're having an ongoing discussion on the show these days, and I'm sure it's an ongoing discussion in your life too about the impact of these sky-high gas prices. On average, I'm seeing $2.10 a litre. Every station was at that point this morning when I was coming into work, and usually there's some kind of variation. So yes, it's hitting you in the pocketbook. Maybe you're having to cut back somehow. We were talking about the airline industry, how they're going to have to find a way to deal with this, the travel industry. What about local organizations? A lot of them are being impacted by this too, quite hard, especially charities. How do you get volunteers to pitch in and help out if it's costing the volunteers now more to help you out? And what about the food bank? 
They use trucks, they use vehicles, not just to transport goods to those who need it, but to collect food from different collection points. And now they have this added pressure. Well, joining us now is Cynthia Bolter, who's the Chief Operating Officer at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning, Simi. How have these high gas prices impacted your work? Well, you know, we're already seeing probably the most volume we have we have ever seen, at least in the data that's been collected. We're up to pre-pandemic levels of individuals coming to see us for food support, um, which, you know, is about 10,000 people or a little bit more per month. Um, and we're supporting more community agencies than we ever have before. We're up to 120 a week uh, who come to us for food support for their food programming. We've always historically noticed a, a jump in um, attendance when the gas prices go up. So I, I just expect that to continue. We were looking at some data yesterday and saw that that since January, our uh, our visits per month, so the number of sort of people who are using the the food bank, the number of times they come, it's gone up about uh, by about eleven hundred in uh, just over a couple months. So it's already on the rise, and I think this is just going to increase that volume. Oh wow! So you're saying if people's personal household budgets are being squeezed, you're the, the you're the front line of that. You're going to see that right away. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is traditionally what has happened. And uh, so I, you know, we are just preparing for a continual increase. You know, our, um, our, our food purchasing budget um, has almost doubled in about three years. And we're certainly budgeting for more last year and uh, sorry, more next year. And as you were just mentioning, we have a fleet of um, very large refrigerated trucks that need to get fueled uh, each week. And uh, so we're, we're paying it as well. We try with our food purchasing, we have great buying power. So we try to, you know, sort of grab onto the deals when they happen. And we certainly buy direct from farmers and, um, and industry producers and, and growers all the time. Uh, but we are, we are definitely feeling it um, at our end as well as seeing it in the clients who are coming to us for support. Oh, right. And so is that costing you more as well in terms of your trucks and everything that have to go mm-hmm. out and pick up food? That's right. Yeah, our costs are up and then the demand is up. So it's it's kind of a, a double-ended situation for us. Um, I mean, we're seeing about 500 new clients register a month. A year ago, it was about 400. Um, and certainly in terms of trends, we're seeing a lot of newcomers to Canada um, and international students. That's just been a, a steady trend uh, of these um, young adults generally who come to us and uh, and just don't have enough money left for food. Do you expect, Cynthia, that that is going to get worse? Because given the gas price situation, it's really been hitting the last couple of weeks and it might there might be a bit of more of a trickle-down effect to happen. Yes, yes, we do. So we are, um, you know, honestly, I mean, we're, we're constantly assessing, but um, what we're seeing right now is sort of, peak visits at our different locations just going up. So our top three busiest days are always sort of in the last three months on a rotating basis. So where do we need to extend our hours? Um, you know, what what more can we do if we are feeling um, kind of pinched? So you were saying there's more people coming to the food bank for help. So have you been mm-hmm. able to get more food from your suppliers, mm-hmm. more donations coming in from people? Yes, um, great question. We we truly have. I would say that the amount of food and the quality of food we're giving out has 
never been better. Over half of the food we give out is fresh. So that's produce, that's dairy, that's eggs, that's uh, proteins, both uh, meat and uh, vegetarian proteins. Um, And we have now built up over the last few years four additional nutrition programs that people can pick up on top of their weekly allotment. And that goes from babies through to grade schoolers at 12 years old. So three different programs, dietitian designed for kids. And then we recently uh, launched our seniors program, um, and that's actually in distribution this week. And that's um, uh, quite a bit of extra food for seniors. Uh, We really focused on easy-to-eat, high-protein foods that they can prepare on their own. About uh, 17 to 20% of our clients are seniors, and about 65% of those seniors are single. And we know that Um, seniors and single seniors are unlikely to cook at home and their nutrition can really suffer. So we wanted to to give that a big boost. Um, It also contains um, nutritional drinks for them, really high protein nutritional drinks. So we're doing our best to really target the most vulnerable in addition to the food that our clients receive every week. Cynthia, is there anything that the Greater Vancouver Food Bank can do to prepare for the potential of these gas prices hitting harder? Uh, well, I mean, we, we certainly um, look to our industry donors and what we are purchasing, and, uh, and we are proactive that way. So as you're saying, are we bringing in more food? Yes, we moved uh, three years ago to a, a large warehouse in Burnaby because we couldn't find a location in Vancouver, and Burnaby is within our catchment, and we are full. We also have a lease space uh, in Vancouver for our community agencies to pick up with refrigeration that is full, and we put refrigeration in our Vancouver distribution location, which we also lease, um, and that is full. So we are just we are stocking the fridges and the freezers and the shelves, and we will be ready. And you are stuffing them as full as you can possibly get them. We are. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so, With healthy food, you know, high protein, a right. lot of nutrients. How can we help, though, Cynthia? A couple of different ways. Um, we always need volunteers, to be honest, um, particularly in our distribution locations. You can sign up on our, our website, which is foodbank.bc.ca, um, and we distribute food uh, mainly in Vancouver and in Burnaby, but also in New West and on the North Shore. Vancouver and Burnaby are where our greatest needs are. We have a couple evenings a week, three evenings a week, actually, and then a Saturday as well. So there are lots of different options to choose from. It's a super rewarding experience. Um, And then donating money, if people can afford to, is the best way to, honestly, to donate and help a food bank because then we can really harness our buying power. So you can donate from our site. We also have a monthly donor campaign going on right now that is matched. So uh, for the first three months, every new donor that signs up, those donations will be matched and doubled um, by uh, a couple of very generous donors. And that's an awesome way to help a charity uh, with with a monthly donation because they can rely on it and they know it's coming. The world of fundraising sometimes contains some surprises we don't always want, but not with monthly donors. Oh, that is so true. All right, Cynthia, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Cynthia Bolter is the Chief Operating Officer at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the price of the pump is really hurting a lot of people out there, a lot of businesses too. Imagine operating a delivery business right now, and there goes your profit margin. Joining us now to talk more about that is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. 
Hi, Simi. I just feel like lately things suddenly feel so much more expensive and it's made me realize that the price of oil touches everything. If something's getting delivered, then there's likely going to be an increase in price these days. And I've been thinking about how delivery companies must be struggling to just operate right now. For anyone driving a delivery truck, these gas prices are especially dire. And I talked to Spud. They are a local online grocery company that delivers from a big warehouse in Burnaby, but they serve Vancouver and the whole main lower mainland. They're already doing their part to uh, carpool groceries as in their delivery as efficiently as possible. But this business of carpooling to people still involves gas, right? And the delivery person needs to fill their refrigerated van from the warehouse, does that, does all the deliveries at once. And, you know, a refrigerated delivery van, that's going to be even extra gas. So they're really feeling it. Here's Helena McShane on, on how it works. One of the main reasons we're on the road at all is to be carpooling groceries for, for our customers. So we have you know a fleet of vans and wonderful drivers who who are keeping approximately in bc a th- at least 1000 cars off the road every day so the research that 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 we know when you carpool groceries at least you're doing at least half the carbon as as you would be if those cars were going to the grocery store and in bc i know the numbers that we have are are that we do um, from our warehouse in Burnaby, we do up to 1,800 orders in a day. And in one van, we fit around 50 orders. So that's 50 cars that might have been on the road. So that's how the business works. Now, obviously, being in the food industry at all, there's a, a very low profit margin. And they're already working as efficiently with gas as they can. That's part of their business model. But still, that impact of the rising fuel cost it's having it's just huge on them. It affects the business by an increase of around 40% in gas. So it is a huge impact. It is um something that we talk about every day. What we've done, um, and this is for now. So truth be told, we're gonna have to revisit this as these increases continue. We are gonna have to come back to the table and look at this and try and find more ways to save, you know, for our customers and try and be leaner and greener and just, but for now, what we've done is we've taken the delivery model. So the, the, the way you, you pay for your delivery, we've promised that it will never be hidden in food. So, you know, with food prices on the rise, customers are dealing with enough in this region um, already, so we will never be hiding delivery costs, fuel costs in in the prices of food. Um, what we have done is we've restructured our delivery fee model so that if you do live further from the warehouse, you will need to pay more in order to reflect the actual cost of fuel for your delivery. So what she's saying, Simi, there is she's addressing of how you pass on that fuel cost to your customer? Do you hide it in the line item for the grocery or do you keep it separate? And it's kind of, I mean, the pricing is kind of part of your marketing, right? Like I wish tips were part of the menu items at a restaurant because I want to just, I just want to know how much is the whole thing going to cost so I can figure out if it's worth it or not. Well, 
this grocery delivery business wants to make sure that you know as the consumer what is what. So if price of gas goes up, that delivery fee has to go up. There's going to be a fuel surcharge or it's really clear to you. But she said that's really neat because when it goes down again, at least her company wants to make sure you see that reflected in what you pay. I think what also tends to happen with fuel surcharges, and we've talked about before, uh, you know, we used to see that with buying an airline ticket is that once it's on there, it's really hard to take it off yeah. or to lower it, right? Oh yeah, the demand so, comes for sure. I wonder as well if they'll have to rethink how they do the delivery. She was saying that they'll have to charge more to people farther out of the delivery area, but then can't they also open up another sec- like another warehouse so that they would have still have access to those customers? They are exploring so many options, um, but they also want to remain as as green as possible. And it's not easy. We all hope to switch to electric. We all hope for that that greener, that greener, cleaner energy um, that will be able to allow us to carpool groceries. You know, and and we can say we're doing it with electricity. Unfortunately for us. As a delivery company, when you're packing 55 orders into one van, you need a refrigerated van and you need a van that's going to take you the 200 kilometers that you need to get in order to deliver to those customers to keep their cars off the road. And the industry is not there yet. And it's actually, for me, it's it's quite similar, you know, for my family, we would love a, a, an electric car that is affordable and that fits our needs. But there is no minivan that is affordable that will take all of us um, and go electric as of yet. So it, I think, and that's why we talk about support from, from government, because with the in, if the industry works together with the government and they support each other, we can get there faster. I wonder too, Raji, though, if with all of this demand now because of high fuel prices, if there aren't automakers that are scrambling to say more, 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 we got we got to design more cars and put them out there. More electric vehicles, yeah. more electric solutions, I think. I mean, we know that these prices are going to continue to go up. And some have speculated that we have no idea how much higher they could go. That put the fear in me. <laughs> when I heard that because I thought, okay, surely like we can't hover here for too long, but uh, we don't know what we're in store for. So I think uh, businesses have to, especially delivery businesses, which Mm -hmm. we've seen so much more of since the pandemic started, are going to have to do some big problem solving around this. So true. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about high school. We know that in order to graduate in high school, there's certain requirements that you have to fulfill and a certain number of electives. Well, BC is actually changing some of those requirements, actually, for the class of 2024. So what's changing? Let's find out. Joining us now, Jennifer Whiteside, BC's Minister of Education. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. So what's going to change for the class of 2024? Yeah, so uh, what we're doing really is building on work that's been done over many years in our uh, K-12 education system to incorporate Indigenous-focused content. And we're now uh, making, uh, uh, making a requirement that as part of uh, the, the graduation requirement, students will have to have uh, four credits of Indigenous-focused content. And that might be a, a course or it might be a bundle of credits. 
Um, but it is, uh, it's, uh, it, it's really sort of a, the, the natural next step to work that's been done over some time in our system. And why do you feel it's important to include this? Well, you know, Simi, what I've been thinking a lot about these days is the, is, is the words of, of uh, Justice Marie Sinclair, who, as the chair of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, now seven years ago, said that education got us into this mess and education is what will get us out of it. And that was, you know, really with respect to um, what we see uh, in, in education in terms of, uh, you know, uh, really uh, different outcomes for Indigenous students, a real gap in knowledge amongst all students about um, Indigenous history and culture and perspectives. And so it's, it's important. And at this time in particular, I think it's important that we, uh, that, that we move forward with this, um, with this very intentional and structured approach to ensuring that students um, have that information and that knowledge. So do we have the coursework already or is that still in the process? Like how do we know what's going to be taught? Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually we do because over uh, many years, uh, um, uh, educators and ministry staff have worked with the uh, folks in the First Nations Education Steering Committee to develop a number of courses. So we have, for example, um, English courses that are focused on First Peoples uh, content, uh, Indigenous content. And those are offered throughout uh, through through grade uh, through grade ten to twelve. We have uh, contemporary in, um, Indigenous studies uh, at, for the for grade twelve uh, students. We have writing courses that are focused on Indigenous content, for example. And we also have a number of Indigenous language courses uh, where uh, we are teaching uh, in in our schools uh, in Indigenous languages. So there are, we have the foundation, we, we have courses available. What we have found, though, is that, that, that we don't have, um, uh, in, in sort of, a, you know, in, ter- in terms of these courses being an elective, we don't necessarily have um, um, all, of, all of our schools offering them or students able to pick them right. up when they want them. I guess what I'm wondering then is how many of these will be required versus electives? Yeah, so what, what we're, this is part of the discussion that we want to have with, uh, with parents and with the education community and with Indigenous communities over the next uh, two months during our engagement process is to, is to ask um, uh, people in the, uh, connected to the education, um, to our education system, how, how do you think we could best accomplish this? Do you think it, uh, would it be better for it to be simply one course that's required, one four-credit course? Should it be a bundle of credits? Um, we have a provision as well for local boards of education to work with local First Nations to develop sort of regionally specific courses that will, um, will build on, uh, uh, you know, regional, uh, regional content. So there, there's, a, there's a few different ways that we could, we could look at it. We have a sort of a proposed model that, we're, that we've put out on our engagement site, and we're really looking forward to having this conversation with the community. So how quickly then do you think this will be in schools? We're saying class of 2024. Well, those kids would be in what, grade 10 right now? And let's face it, they do course planning a couple of years in advance. So they kind of need to know. Yeah, well, they do. And and some of those courses, for example, there, I know of at least two school districts um, where, uh, where the districts have already had already made the decision that they were going to offer the English first people's 10 course as the English course for, for the, for the next year. So in a number of areas, it will already be available because these courses are, are, have already been developed and are, and are already offered. What, we'll, what we will be doing is working with districts to, to, um, to see where, uh, where, we, where we need to improve the offerings and you know, working with them on a plan with respect to how, how that gets accomplished. 
Okay, so it sounds like, what is the timeline then like to make some of these final decisions? So our engagement uh, website is up, it's open um, on uh, engage.gov.bc.ca and that will be open for two months and then we'll uh, we'll collect all of that feedback. We'll be talking with boards and boards will be talking with uh, with, with uh, people in, in their respective communities. We'll, of course, be engaging with uh, um, with Indigenous communities and with First Nations. And then we'll put all of that together. And uh, before the beginning of the 2022-2023 of the, 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 the school year, we'll have the final model in place. Right. So I guess from what it sounds like then, uh, Minister, is that it will be different regionally. So will students learn about different Indigenous groups depending on where in the province they're taking this course or where they're in high school? Well, there's, there are provincial courses which have a sort of a broader provincial approach to, uh, to the content. And there may be um, uh, an opportunity for some courses that, are, uh, that provide more, more locally specific um, content. Okay, so parents, what do they? What do parents need to know right now then about this? Well, I think they need to know that um, what what we are doing is really advancing uh, in the next step um, in in our education system. We're really responding to something that I can say I have heard from many kids that they want to see that they they want opportunities to have uh, to 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 have have this knowledge to talk about these issues. And we're also supporting work that educators are already doing in the system because all of the, you know, all of the, the, the issues that arise in the outside world, um, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, how, how to understand our government's commitment to the dec- through the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People Act or how to understand the impact of residential schools, all of those issues show up in classrooms and educators are dealing with those every day in classrooms. This provides more structure and a stronger foundation uh, for, for that work. So I think that parents should be confident that we have a very structured approach to this, that educators have been doing um, a very, uh, very, very thorough and very um, extensive work on this for many years, that this, this isn't something new uh, that's coming, that all of our uh, partners in education, from educators to, to trustees to parent groups to, uh, to school administrators, support this move. Um, and are very committed to making it work. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that today. Thanks so much, Cindy. Have a good day.